Welcome to A Piece of My Mind, a podcast that uses storytelling to bridge divides and build community. Today I'm talking with Shane Claiborne, who's a speaker, an activist, and an author. He founded The Simple Way, an intentional community in Philadelphia, building a neighborhood of belonging. And he leads Red Letter Christians, a group that's committed to living like Jesus meant the things he said. Good to be with you, man. Shane, it's great to be with you. Thanks for taking the time. I'm curious, your work is so broad when you look at it from developing this neighborhood in Philly to going to Afghanistan and doing this this international advocacy. What's on your heart these days? Well, the people that have shaped and formed me are folks that have their feet on the ground in real neighborhoods, real spaces with people that are vulnerable and impacted by injustices. And that also creates a fire in your bones to do something about the things that are crushing folks' lives. So uh, that little community in North Philadelphia, I've been there for uh, 25 years and so much of the fire in my bones comes from that. You know, we've seen way too many people killed by guns. I mean, almost every corner's we've got a memorial to the lives lost. You know, Dr. King was right when he said, uh, we're all called to be the good Samaritan and lift our neighbor out of the ditch. But after you lift so many people out of the ditch, you start to say, we got to do something about the whole road to Jericho, you know? <laughs> so that's, Right, right. You know, we so, got to look at the structure yeah. and see why they're falling in the ditch. Yeah, so I, I kind of think of, these are like the two feet I walk on, you know, the simple ways, the local stuff in Philly, and then Red Letter Christians, and work like we're, you know, doing today in, in Washington is movement work, and so I, I, I believe in both, you know, and I know, I know a lot of folks that are working here in D.C. that they need to come play in a fire hydrant in North Philly, you know, they need to like get outside of <laughs> the, the, the uh, um halls of congress and hang out with some kids and help them with their homework or something so the you know that's kind of that's the integration of things that i really enjoy i always say i write my best when i've got dirt under my fingertips you know from being in the garden and uh so yeah it's fun man yeah yeah it's good stuff the new monasticism talk about that a little bit (laughs) Well, it was never the primary language I used to describe what we're doing, partly because half the people I know, you know, they'd be like, I know you're kind of nasty, but, what, what <laughs> but why do we have to say it in the name? Yes, uh, but for folks that are students of church history and things like that, I mean, there is this sense that the church is constantly in need of renewal and those monastic communities i mean mono means one you know to will one thing that those traditions like mother Teresa, has been a real inspiration for me and you know like the way that she integrated her faith into a way of living you know and that meant simplicity i mean for her it meant celibacy it meant you know living her life among people who are hurting and 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 so i the church needs that kind of renewal but the catholic worker movement i mean that was another iteration of of renewal so but what it what it means for me is that we don't just believe that christianity is a way of believing it's a way of living that affects how we hold possessions how we interact with violence um the trajectory of 
kind of the gravity of our lives rather than moving away from suffering, we're leaning into it because that's what Jesus did. And that's, uh, you know, what a lot of these monastic communities have done over the centuries is, is uh, keep us true to the gospel way of life. So I've always liked that. Yeah, I'm curious because it feels like in the world, people can sometimes get really close to making big changes in their lives, but then they back away. They get scared of it. And when I think of some of these ideas you're talking about, some people could call those ways of life radical. Some people might call Jesus radical. But when you have been ready for bold things in your life, you haven't backed away. And why? Well, I I, I, I don't know that that's always true. That, I, But I, I do think what I've learned is there's a couple things. One of them is I really like the word radical. It doesn't just mean extreme or over the top. I mean, the actual, the word itself, radical, means root, you know, just like a radish. Uh, it's a root. I think that that's what we're really talking about, right? It, it, when we're talking about social justice is let's let's get at the root of it. Let's not just put Band-Aids on a, on a, on a, a bullet wound, you know, like, like, let's actually do systemic change. Um, so I, I like the word radical. I also often couple it with ordinary. You know, I like my books. I The subtitle of my first book was Living as an Ordinary Radical, because I don't think that we want to be seen as this supernatural, saintly life, like um, that there's all kinds of ways of being radical. I mean, I know doctors and engineers and lawyers that are all using their gifts and vocations in incredible ways, and they inspire me, you know. But I do think the other thing that I... I've learned is that courage is contagious. And if we want to be more courageous, then we need to hang out with courageous people, you know, and, and they kind of rub off on us. And so I've, I've come to think of community as surrounding ourselves with people who look like the kind of person we want to be, you know, so if you want to be more generous, you hang out with generous people. And it's kind of what peer pressure is when you're, you know, a right in the, in the best way. Yeah, 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 right. right. So, I mean, we do, we do tend to act a lot like the people we surround ourselves with. So, yeah, I want to surround myself with people who remind me of Jesus, you know, and they help me maybe act a little bit more like him. Hmm. I like that. What is it that called you to action in your life? Where was that seed that brought you where you are today? Well, I've always liked that scripture that says we're working out our salvation with fear and trembling, uh, that, that it's not about a moment, but it's this kind of movement that the Spirit's doing in us, shaping and forming us. And, um, but there, there are some really clear moments in the midst of working out my own salvation, you know, and one of those was when I fell in love with Jesus in middle school and, been figuring that out ever since, you know, how to, <laughs> what that means. But then another one was when I was uh, in undergrad, a group of homeless mothers moved into an abandoned Catholic church building in North Philadelphia. And uh, they had nowhere to go. And there were like 3,000 families on the waiting list for housing. So they moved into this building uh, really out of desperation. And abandoned Catholic sanctuary, right? The Catholic Church gave them 48 hours to get out or they could be arrested for trespassing. That was one of those moments where 
it shook us, you know, and it sparked a student movement. And check this out, just to like bridge the worlds a little bit. Liz, Reverend Liz Theo Harris, the yeah. co-chair of the Poor People's Campaign, was a student organizer in Philadelphia. And that's that's how long we've known each other, too, for <laughs> you know, 25 years. But we were organizers as students back then. And I was organizing on a different, you know, campus and in a different circle than she was. But we, we all converged, you know, to... Um, stand in solidarity with those poor and homeless mothers and families. And, you know, there's a handful of those. That That's also sort of the the spark that lit the fire for our community, the simple way we we started around the corner from that old abandoned church. I got married in the the, the old abandoned church. We, we got uh, permission to go back in because that, that could be awkward, you know, getting arrested in, your, in the middle of the In the of midst own. of the matrimony. <laughs> yeah. Sure. Yeah, that would be not, not ideal. Not what the in-laws want to happen there. So, uh, uh, you know, when the war broke out, we were all grieving the, the violence, the, the response of of a war after the terrorist attacks, you know. So this is, um, you mean when we went into Afghanistan? In Iraq, yeah, in both Iraq, of them, yeah. yeah. You know, I went to Iraq, uh, and Jonathan, who is, you know, here with us today, he, he and Leah were there as well. We we went as a part of a delegation to stand against the war and to witness and volunteer in the hospitals, uh, be with the Iraqi families. And, um, and that was, I mean, one of the most transformative experiences too. I mean, that was during what was called the shock and awe campaign. So 900 bombs a day, some days were being dropped on Iraq and, and we were living in Baghdad. So that really shaped me um, and my passion for nonviolence. You know, I, I didn't grow up in like the traditional peace church, like the Mennonites or Quakers or something. I mean, my dad was in Vietnam. I was in the evangelical church, which is unfortunately very comfortable with God and war, you know? Mm-hmm, right. <laughs> so, right. So, but, uh, I mean, you know, being in Iraq convinced me like never before. I mean, I already had that that kind of gut instinct or that conscience, but that war was wrong. But once we experienced what we saw there, you just don't walk away from that uh, without feeling like I want part of my life. I want to spend the rest of my life trying to stop violence in every form that it has, including our military spending and our addiction to violence you know yeah not just what that does but the opportunity cost that's lost by what we can't do because those resources are going other other places yeah absolutely yeah in your new understanding after that what what is your understanding of god and war where does that fit into our theology yeah Writing a book on that right now. Are um, you? Yeah, it's called. Will Re- you give us a preview? Yeah, I will. <laughs> it's called rethinking life, and um, I, I mean, this goes all the way back to the inaugural murder, you know, of Cain and Abel. I mean, the first thing that happens outside the Garden of Eden after the the kind of fall, you know, in the garden is uh, a murder. Cain killing his brother, and it's also the first time that the word sin is used. Is is not actually in the Garden of Eden, but oh, I didn't is, is, is in the murder, and of course that scripture says that the the blood um, cries out to God from the ground, and um, my Jewish friends have taught me the depth of that. That the the word blood is actually plural, so it'd be more accurate to say the bloods of all the people. So it's not it's very clear in the text that this was not just about Abel's blood; it's about all the blood Humanities. and it's and it's in the um, present tense so it's not that it cried out 
to God, but it still cries out. And until we stop spilling blood, uh, it, it's always crying out to God. Uh, you know, I think of Michael Brown being left in the street in Ferguson. I think of all the lives lost uh, over and over in, you know, Uvalde and Buffalo and mass shootings and the not mass shootings, the other, you know, the 98% of our shootings that are just happening largely under the radar every day, you know, all that. So that, that, that matters to God. Every person's made in the image of God. Um, anytime a life is crushed, we're crushing part of God's image in the world. When I think of what happens in Jesus, that's where I really think, I mean, this is for me, the the pinnacle of history, you know, is, is when God puts skin on and moves in among us and doesn't just come in any bodily form, right? But it comes in the the flesh of a brown skin, Palestinian, Jewish refugee. When Jesus is born, Herod's killing children, separating families, you know, trying to massacre the kids. And, and so from the moment he's born until he's executed on the cross, Jesus is God's most profound act of solidarity with us uh, to to come and to suffer with us even to the point of saying my god my god why have you forsaken me so when, when I, I tell people if that's how you feel right now then you're in good you're company not alone. i mean like like literally you could chew on that for a while you know is that god felt the absence of god and on the cross i think what jesus does is make a spectacle of violence Colossians says it really good that that Jesus put death on display to subvert it, to undermine it with with love and forgiveness and an empty tomb. And so I, I think that Jesus absorbs all the violence of the world in order to show us a way forward that is loving, that doesn't mirror the violence and this terrible logic uh, that we're going to use violence to heal us from our violence. And we live by the sword, you die by the sword. I mean, Jesus was a such a consistent interrupter of violence. He stops an execution of the woman in adultery. He scolds uh, his own disciples when they want to call down fire from heaven. He you know, disarms Peter and rebukes him when he pulls a sword to protect him. So Jesus is the Prince of Peace. And, and, and I think literally it became impossible for me to justify violence in any form uh, in light of Jesus. And I, I think that's the whole point of it, you know, is uh, Jesus is teaching us there's, there's something worth dying for, but nothing worth killing for. You know, love dies, but it doesn't kill. Talking about what that looks like in the world today, your guns to garden tools. I just learned about that. Tell me more. Yeah, well, there's this beautiful text in the prophets, and both it's both in Micah and Isaiah, where uh, the biblical prophets talk about God's people beating swords into plows and spears into pruning hooks. So it gives you this powerful image of literally transforming metal that's been crafted to kill into metal that's crafted for life, you know, to cultivate life. So we, you know. Ten years ago, a little over ten years ago, we started going, hey, we don't have a lot of swords in America, but we got a heck of a lot of guns. You know, we got more guns than people now. And we invited people to donate guns if they wanted to, to surrender their weapons. The first gun we got was an AK-47. 
guy that was just like, I have no idea why I have this. I, I, I want to get rid of it. I don't even want to sell it. I want to, you know, decommission it. Mm-hmm. And so we turned our th- that first gun into garden tools, and we've been doing it ever since. So over the last 10 years, we've taken hundreds, I mean, thousands of guns and uh, turned them into shovels and plows. and Like uh, what, literally melting crosses. them down? Or? Yeah. Um, we do all kinds of stuff. So there's, we've got a network now of folks around the country that are doing this. So we're always learning. Um, okay, so you got you got blacksmithing, which is the old school. You know, you, you heat the metal up and it, it becomes malleable. So that's mostly what we're doing. Mm-hmm. But then we've got welders that are making art out of – so like you, you slice guns up and chop them up or you make flowers out of them. Or, I mean, we've made all kinds of – Really, really spectacular stuff. And a lot of times it's got a story, too. Like this one guy gave us a gun. And um, this is like old school double barrel uh, shotgun. And I looked at it and I was like, what? And, and then I could see him almost start to tear up. He's like, this gun killed my brother. And I, I, was, I mean, it was all rusted and everything. Was, so my buddy took that and recrafted it and has these three roses for the Trinity, this guy was a very spiritual guy, and so he wanted something that kind of, you know, evoked that. And there's a rose in each barrel of the double barrel, but then there's an, a rose that's coming out of the handle. And he said, I put that one there for the guy that pulled the trigger, you know, praying mm-hmm. that he, he would be transformed. And so there's the art piece of it. But then, you know, several years into this, we realized that what we're doing is not just artistic or poetic or symbolic. But it's therapeutic, you know, it's it's really healing. And we realized that when we kind of spontaneously had a gun that we were transforming uh, on the anvil. So this is, you know, blacksmithing. And we said, does anyone want to take the hammer? And a few folks that had lost their kids started pounding on that gun. And I'll never forget this woman, Miss Ryans, as she she had a picture of her son on her shirt. And she started just beating on it. And you could feel everything in her. You know, she, with every thump of the hammer, she said, this is for my boy. And now we've done that all over the country, you know, and a lot, and we deliberately invite people if they want to. There's never any pressure. But uh, if people have been impacted first and they want to take the hammer, they're welcome to. And they'll often just begin sharing their story and what what's behind the hammer as they're beating it. You know, I mean, we've seen people collapse. We've seen folks that have taken someone else's life that have told their stories. You know, my friend, Reverend Risher, this is the anniversary of the Emanuel AME shooting this week, the and Mother Emanuel in Charleston, in that, you know, historic black church on Wednesday in their Bible study and prayer meeting, nine of them were killed, and her mother was one of those. Her family was killed, and so she started beating on it, and she, she named all nine of them. And then she kind of collapsed in my arms afterwards, and she said, that healed me. She said, there's something that happened, and she later told me a lot of the things I've thought about doing. I just took them all out on the middle of that gun. You know, so in the church, we have a word, you know, uh, sacrament. And I've come to think of it like that. You know, the word sacrament means holy mystery. And it does kind of feel like that when we're transforming a gun. It's sort of hard to put words to everything that happens, but you feel like this is very holy. 
And uh, there's so, something yeah. powerful about that journey and that process. Yeah. It's also good for my soul, you know, after a mass shooting to go out and just beat the crap out of an AR-15. But, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, what is the thing that you wish the world understood a little bit more? Wow, man. That's a big closing question. <laughs> I guess the power of being proximate to those who are hurting and, and whose lives are really being crushed right now. I mean, that's what today was about, you know, centering the voices of people who have been impacted by poverty. And a we lot of, we tend to insulate ourselves from that discomfort. Yeah. And I think that's what happens in Jesus is God, leans in you know god gets even more proximate to us i mean god is with us from the beginning but i mean you know that sense of this is god showing us how close god really is you know and and i've come to real realize that our biggest challenge in the church i don't think is a a compassion problem but it is a proximity problem it's the it's a relational disconnect you know um yeah, so, so nothing puts an urgency in us to do something about these issues than when they hit home, you know, or we're close to someone that they impact. Um, so that I think that's a lot of people, you know, you don't change your mind because you lose an argument. I think you change your mind about immigration or the death penalty or, you know, gun violence or something because you've met someone that it's, it's impacted. And it's become close and real to you. Yeah, I think a policy is the same way. It's hard to get excited about politics. But if we think loving my neighbor means not ignoring the policies that are impacting their lives. And, you know, so whether it's guns or immigration or prison, you know, mass incarceration, police violence, all these things, like so many of them, I think, um, how near we are matters and so much of our world the gravity is pulling us away from the pain you know it's what suburban sprawls about you know move out of neighborhoods where there's high crime or there's people that don't look like us and yet i think the gravity of the gospel should do just the opposite to us should be kind of pulling us towards the the suffering of the world any parting advice it's good man it's a good conversation yeah thanks for invite me to dialogue well i appreciate you <laughs> taking the time it's uh i'm glad we squeezed it in and it's it's good to talk with you yeah thanks bro